This morning, I, I thought about an old story. It was about a, a pastor that decided he was going to visit a family in his congregation, and he went, and, and he showed up there on a Thursday evening at their house, and they sat down to a nice meal, followed it up with a cup of coffee, and as time wore on and it came time for him to leave, he said, hey, would you guys mind if I spent some time reading from the Bible with you? And the mother and the family said, absolutely. And she looked at her son, Billy, and said, Billy, would you go get that big book that we spend so much time in? And Billy ran into the other room, came back and plopped the Sears catalog in front of his mom. <laughs> There's another story about two, two young, young kids, a brother and sister. The sister was eight and the brother was was six, and the brother said to the sister, he said, why do you suppose it is that grandma spends so much time reading her Bible? And the eight-year-old sister, with all the wisdom that an eight-year-old possesses, looks at her brother and says, I think she's cramming for her finals. (laughs) This morning's message is, is about God's Word, all right? It's about Receiving God's word, spending time in God's word, and sharing it with others. That's where we want to go. That's where the book of Acts goes this morning. And before we get into the passage, I want to tell you, some of you hear that and you say, oh man, we're in for a lecture. Because you you hear about reading God's word and and every message you've ever heard was a pastor getting up and and beating on you because you don't spend enough time in there and you're saying, I don't want to sit through that again. I don't want to go there. And I just want to say from the get-go, that's not my heart this morning. I don't want this to be a lecture or a guilt trip. I want it to be an inspiration to those of you, and I know many of you do spend much time in God's word already. I want it to inspire you to continue to engage God in that conversation on a daily basis, to continue to hunger for time with God and and hearing what he would say in your life. I want to say to those of you who are doing that, keep it up. And those of you who are sitting here and saying, man, I, I don't spend time in God's word. This is not a lecture or a guilt trip. I want it to be an invitation to you to realize that the God of the universe wants, longs, is passionate about having this ongoing conversation with you. And he gave us his word so that you could, could know his heart. So I want to start first with how we share God's word with others. And then we'll, we'll go to how we receive God's word from him. We're doing that because of the passage we're in. If you would, just turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And we're going to follow Paul as he continues on his journey. Verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. I want to pause for just a second to go to a map. You guys will remember if you were here a couple weeks ago, Paul was in Philippi, up there by the number four, and there was some persecution there. He left there and headed to Thessalonica, number five there. That's where we're starting out today. We're going to look at his stops in two cities. Thessalonica was a city of about 200,000 people, which in that day and age was a huge city. And it was strategic because you can see it's on the shore of the ocean there, and it was also along a major road. Many of Paul's stops by God's leading were strategic. Paul knew and God knew that if he hit the large cities, 
near the roads, near the oceans, it would spread out from there and reach other people. So that's one of the first things I want us to think about. If God was strategic as to where Paul stopped, he didn't stop at every city. I got to believe he's strategic with where he calls you and I to share the gospel today, to share his word. I challenge each of our missional communities regularly to think about who is it you're called to to reach. Maybe it's a neighborhood. Maybe it's a people group at the laundromat, as one group does. Maybe it's the homeless, as we're starting to come alongside the gospel rescue mission. Who is it that you are called to reach? Individually or as a missional community, that's important. As Paul gets there, I want to look back at verses 1 through 3, at how he shares the gospel with them. He went to the Jewish synagogue, and it says, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. That's an important word. Reasoned with them from the scriptures. Explaining, that's the second word, and proving. Reasoned, explaining, and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, what I want to look at with those three words is when you look at the Greek meaning of those words, those are three very different ways of communicating the truth of God. Paul used three different tools to communicate about Jesus to these people. We're going to look at each one. I think this is important because I don't know if you're like me or a lot of people. When you think about sharing the gospel with people, maybe you get one very limited picture of what that looks like. And to you, that that means sitting someone down in a situation where they can't get away and just backing your dump truck of knowledge up and talking for an hour about everything you know. And a lot of us are like, I want nothing to do with that because that freaks people out and it freaks me out. But that's the only picture we have when it comes to sharing the gospel. Well, this passage shows us there are many ways to share the gospel. And I want to break it down. There's three that, that are mentioned. One is when it uses the word reasoned with them. The Greek word for that really means to dialogue with someone. And what it's getting into is that he had sort of a question and answer session with the people that were listening to him that day. He asked them some questions, they answered. Perhaps they asked him some questions and he answered. It was a conversation. You guys know Jesus used this a lot, right? You know how many questions Jesus asked throughout the course of the Gospels? Some have estimated it around 170 questions that Jesus asked in the process of teaching people. Questions are, are obviously a valuable tool. Listen to some of them you might remember. Matthew six twenty seven: Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Luke 5.23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Mark 9.12, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Over and over, Jesus went to the Q&A format, and that's one of the ways Paul talked with these folks about the gospel. And I wanted to share something that I learned a couple years ago from a course called Tactics in Defending the Faith. And it's this exact thing. It's how to use questions and answers when you're talking with someone that needs Jesus. 
the, the guy that put the course together pointed out that a lot of times we go in on the defensive from the get-go. We feel like very nervous and skittish and like we've got to defend God and, and really if we don't, we're going to lose or whatever. And his whole point was we don't have to go into that conversation defensive. We'll talk about there are times to come from a more apologetic posture. But where he went was, hey, why don't you engage some questions when you're talking with that person? And there were three questions that I want to share with you guys that he shared that maybe you can use the next time you're talking with someone. Let's say they come to you with a, a belief system that's different from that in the Bible. For instance, evolution, that man came from an evolutionary process. God did not create man specially in the image of God. So you're talking there and they share that and your first reaction is to sort of curl up and get defensive and bristle and he's saying don't do that. Start with a question. When someone says I believe man is created by evolution, the first question is what do you mean by that? The value of that question is many people that you'll talk to are just repeating what they've heard. Okay, they, they've heard it, they read it on an article at CNN, or they heard someone else at college, a college professor talk about evolution. So when you ask them, what do you mean by that? Some of them will have an answer, but some of them will come to the quick realization that they don't really know what they mean by that. They just heard it somewhere. And this is not done to put them on the spot or, or make fun of them or get a get a notch on your belt. It's done in love to help them see the fallacy of their position to enable you to get to the truth. So start with what do you mean by that? If they answer that question, a good follow-up question is how did you come to that conclusion? Because if they can answer the first question, then you're going to ask them to think what are the logical points that brought you to that that conclusion. And some of them will have some thought out points. Some of them will again realize that I haven't really thought this through. This is just what my dad always told me or what my college professor said. Then you get to the third question and this is where you start to get a little more direct. Once their foundation that they thought was so firm starts to show some cracks, you say, have you ever considered the possibility that? And then you go on to talk about why it is you believe man is created in the image of God. You're using questions and answers to dialogue with an individual. That's one tool in your tool belt as you go out there and engage people with the gospel. The second one is there in the word explaining, and it's just what it says. It's opening up the word of God and explaining to them the truth of what the word of God says. This is a command to believers to be able to explain the Bible. Second Tim, Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who do, does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This is not an option for the believer. It's not okay to go through our lives unable to explain what we know about God from the Bible. He says, do your best. He doesn't try, give it a, he doesn't say give it a world, give it a try. He says, do your best. Correctly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, 
to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Continue in it. There's a growth there. Don't just rest on what you learned in the past. Continue in it. Because you know those from whom you learned it. For Timothy, it was his mother and grandmother that initially started to teach him the scriptures. Then Paul. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Timothy got it from a young age, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's one thing they do. They can make us wise as we engage God's word. He goes on to say, all scripture is God-breathed. Well, we could preach a whole sermon on that, right? Just the idea that scripture is God's word. He breathed it. He used men to write it down. God spoke through those men. The fact that God breathed it ought to inspire us to get in there. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The teaching and training in righteousness is when you come alongside someone who's walking down the path and heading the right direction and you continue to help them grow in that. The rebuking, the correcting is obviously to come alongside someone that's beginning to reject the truth of God in their lies or their words and to, to show them the truth so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How many of us would like to be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has for us out there? <laughs> yeah, I would. And he says the way that happens here is through continuing in the Holy Scriptures. So there's Q&A, there's explanation, and there's proving. That's that next word. Proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And that's stating that there is a point in time when you're talking with folks to lay out the evidence for why you believe Jesus rose from the dead. Why you believe he's the only way to heaven. You could go on. There's a, there's a point in time for that kind of apologetic stance. I think of a website that I know of that I like to go to when I'm discussing Jesus with someone from a different faith. Probe.org. If you go there and you want some stuff from an apologetic point of view, you can pull up almost any other worldview, any current issue, and there's some men and women at Probe that have thought through what is the logical reason that God and the Bible and Jesus make sense, and how do I engage someone from that point of view? Check it out. Use the tools that are available. More Than a Carpenter is a book that I've mentioned before. 90 pages. If you're talking with someone and they sincerely want to know why you believe the resurrection really happened, why you believe Jesus is the only way, you can get a 10-pack of that book for like five bucks. Share it with them and go, go through it with them over the course of five weeks. There's a place and a time for that. Paul wasn't the only one, Okay. We talked about Jesus using the Q&A. I want to show you a passage where Jesus used all three of these modes of sharing the good news, okay? He used the Q&A, he used the explaining, and he used the proving. You know who it was with? The Emmaus Road. There were two disciples that had come to Jerusalem, and they were disappointed. They had believed that Jesus was the one that had come to be the Savior, but Jesus had been crucified, and they were walking home discouraged. And the Bible says that Jesus came upon them and he hid, hid himself from being known by them. They could see him, but they couldn't tell it was Jesus. 
And he doesn't start right in with a lecture. You know what he started with in Luke chapter 24, verse 17? He started with question and answer. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He's wanting them to think through what it is they're going through. It says, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, and they asked him a question. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, if anybody knows what happened there, it's Jesus, right? But he still doesn't launch into a lecture. He says, what things? <laughs> How tempting it would have been right there for him to just jump into that. Let me tell you what happened. I lived it. But instead, he says, what things? And they go on to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And they go on to share that they're basically disappointed. They don't know that he's risen from the dead. They're just wrestling with their confusion that he's crucified. Jesus listens to this, and it's several verses long. And then he finally moves into the explaining. It says, he said to them in verse 25, and he's bold, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He added one more question there. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer? And then it says he went through Moses and all the prophets explaining what was said in all the scriptures. We'll move on to proving. They, they get to their house with Jesus and they, they encourage him to stay. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? A lot of people think that the reason their eyes were opened at that moment was as he broke the bread and handed it to them. You know what they most likely saw on his hands? The holes that he had suffered on the cross. What better proof that this was the risen Messiah? Q&A explaining and proving. And I just want to encourage us to keep those different kinds of tools in mind as we go out and engage people that need Jesus. Ask God for wisdom. Which one's appropriate here? Is it appropriate to have some time just dialoguing? Is it time to go ahead and explain or is it, is it time to lay out the proof? Which, just lead me, Holy Spirit, and he will lead us using the tools that Paul used, using the, the tools that Jesus used. We want to see the response. There we go. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Some of them believed but other Jews were jealous. As often was the case, there was a division. We talked about Jesus being a divisive message. If you're preaching the real Jesus, there's going to be different responses. Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, that's evidently where Paul had been staying, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6. 
But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Verse 8. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. What that means is they made Jason put a certain amount of money into the government and they said, you keep that Paul out of here or you're not getting this money back. They basically put him under legal orders not to let Paul come back in. There's a divided response there. Now I want to move on to how to receive God's word. Check out verse 10. Soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. This is about 45 miles away from Thessalonica. It's known from history that even politicians during this day, when they started to catch heat in the big city of Thessalonica, they would book it out of there to go to Berea because it was sort of off the radar. This was where they would go to hide. Paul was going there to get away from the persecution. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now check this out. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? What made them more noble? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And there's where we want to camp for a while. We talked about how you share God's word. Now I want to talk about how you receive it. Let's just start with the first part, great eagerness. When you approach God's word, is it exciting to you? Is it a a realization that men throughout history have given their lives to get that translated into the language of the people? Is it like, wow, I've got something special here? Is it the excitement of the Chinese believers I mentioned a couple weeks ago? There's a, a video on YouTube, if you Google it, they, they receive a box of Bibles and they, they crack it open and they, they hold it as though it's the most precious thing they ever had and they, they smell the pages and, and one lady just begins spontaneously crying because this is the first time they've had their own complete copy of the Word of God. Is that the kind of eagerness we have? And are we examining every day to see if what we hear is true? There's a contrast here. The contrast is with the Jews in Thessalonica who responded with what? What What did they respond with when they heard Paul's message? Jealousy. Yeah. They didn't take the time to look and see if what he said was true. They just responded based on their feelings about it. And part of where I want to go with this, how we receive God's word this morning is how do you know what you know? How do you know what you believe? How do you receive what is truth? And there's a couple options. One is, hey, I just believe what somebody in my life told me. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a mother or father. Maybe it was a friend. I, I just believe it because they, they shared it with me. Or I decide what's true based on what lines up with what's comfortable. You know, if it, if it lines up well with my choices, then yeah, that's true. If it doesn't, I have no interest there. What's easy? What the majority says? Or do you know what's true because you've personally spent time with God in his word? 
I'm telling you, if, if your foundation's in any of those other things, what a pastor tells you, what someone else has told you, what you like, what feels good, it's a shaky foundation. I want to show you a couple examples of things that many people, if you go out in our, on the street and do a poll, there's things many people believe are in the Bible that just aren't there. And it's kind of scary when you get to asking people because it really makes you aware that if, if a lot of pastors wanted to, they could spend half an hour selling a whole line of stuff that has nothing to do with the Bible. And to, to know that there are many people that will take it just on face value. That's how cults begin. That's how things begin. Just, just a couple examples. Some of them are more important than others. This first one's not all that important, but it's interesting. There's a lot of people out there that think cleanliness is next to godliness is a verse in the Bible. That's not in there. You know, that was an ancient Babylonian proverb, and it really started to get popular in the Victorian age, you know, when ladies weren't even allowed to show ankles, and, and people started preaching that, and I feel so badly for the little boys. I have two little boys. To, to preach that cleanliness is next to godliness to a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy who, who yesterday at Slide Rock found a a puddle of warm, muddy water that was about this deep and spent one hour in it having a blast. I mean, that's torturous. And it's just not in the Bible. It, some of it came, the idea that it's in the Bible came from, all right, in the Old Testament, God had a lot of cleanliness laws for the Jews about washings and stuff. But when you get to the New Testament, don't we start to realize that God cares a whole lot more about the heart than he does about cleanliness? Matthew 15 the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus' response to them was, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Okay, one, one not so significant example. Here's one that's a little more serious. How many times you see this thrown around as though God said it in his word? God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. That's from one of Aesop's fables that was written about five or 600 B.C., the fable was called Hercules and the Wagoner. There's this guy pushing a wagon down the road, and his wagon wheel gets stuck in the mud. And as the story went, he prayed for Hercules to help. And Hercules appeared and said, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. And the moral that Aesop gave was the gods help them that help themselves. Now, the statement's not in the Bible, but you start to evaluate it. Is it biblically true? There you get mixed results. When it comes to how someone is made right before God, the idea that God helps those who help themselves is absolutely untrue and dangerously misleading. The Bible doesn't say that when it comes to being made right with God that we need help. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead in our sins. Right? And that only God's love and proactive movement towards us through Jesus is what could save us. 
And the only way we can respond in belief is as he begins to draw us. We cannot help ourselves when it comes to being made right before God. Now, in the work of growing in our faith, there is a cooperation. Okay, we, we live through faith in Christ who, who lives in us. But listen to Philippians 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means we have a part in it, cooperating with what God's doing through faith. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, we work out what God has worked in. There's this cooperation. So mixed results, but that is not in the Bible. Another one, money is the root of all evil. Not there. Not there, but there's sometimes an attitude among Christians that anyone, even in the church, who makes a lot of money, must certainly be evil. And a lot of it's based on a misunderstanding of what the Bible says. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. You know what it says? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Think about Job. Job was probably the wealthiest man in the world at his time. If you ever read that book in the Old Testament, in the Bible says he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And I wonder how many Christian businessmen and women have lived with a false guilt about doing well in business because this lie has been believed. When in reality, they should be freed up to know so long as God is first in their lives and they're providing and loving their families, doggone it, they should make a lot of money so they can bless God's kingdom with what he gives them. They shouldn't feel guilty about it. They should be thankful and be a steward of what it is God's called them to do. Ecclesiastes makes it clear we are to enjoy the work God has put before us. One more. This is not one that you would probably say, but I blogged about this on Facebook a couple weeks ago because I see it more and more. It's the idea that comes up sometimes if, if you're online in a chat forum or responding to an article that's about any hot social issue at the time and you want to interject something from the Bible, you put it out there, one of the most common responses that's, that's meant to be a checkmate and to shut you up and shut you down and make you cower and walk away is that's the same Bible that condones slavery. That's the same Bible that condones slavery. I see it more and more as you discuss truth with people that, that don't believe God's word. Is that true though? Does the Bible condone slavery? Now it comes from, there are many passages where the Bible mentions slavery and doesn't in the same passage overtly condemn it. Sometimes it even regulates it. When you look in the Old Testament, God tells his people how it should look. But here's a couple things that you need to understand. Just for example, one, slavery at that time looked vastly different than what we think of when we think of the African-American slave trade in our history, that blemish on our, our country's history. It was very different. Many times people sold themselves into slavery to take care of the debt. It wasn't so often that someone would, would kidnap someone and sell them to another person. It was a way of, of paying a debt. And when God laid down laws for his people as to how they treated their slaves, 
they were infinitely more humane than the way those cultures around them would treat their slaves. And as you, as you go on, you start to see even more of God's heart, that his ultimate heart is that we're all created in the image of God and should be cre- treated equally. For instance, Exodus twenty-one sixteen: whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. God is obviously against stealing a man and selling him because whoever does it should be put to death. That would say a lot to anyone who would use the Bible to justify our African-American slave trade in our country's history, right? 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. He lists a list of things that are contrary to sound doctrine. Listen to what's in here. Those practicing homosexuality, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Slave traders are listed in a list of things that are contrary to sound doctrine. In the book of Philemon, Paul's writing to a slave master named Philemon. His slaves run away, come to Paul, come to know Jesus. And in verse 16, Paul says, receive him back. I urge you, Philemon, to receive him back, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Last but not least, and there are more, Acts 17.26 says that God has made from one blood every nation of men. That was one of the key verses used by William Wilberforce and other Christians in England to stop the slave trade of Africans because the, the idea here is that if we all come from one blood, then they're not inferior to us. They are equal to us and we should treat them as such. All that to say, man, when somebody throws that out there, do you know your word? Are you able to get in there and say that's wrong? The Bible does not condone the slavery that it records. In fact, it's quite the opposite. As we wrap up, I want to show you the response in Berea. They searched it. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Verse 14. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. That takes us to Athens where we'll pick up in our preaching series next time. But what I want to close by asking you is two questions. The first one is, ask God this week to show you the opportunities where you have to share his word. And ask him to help you get familiar with the different tools that are at your disposal. Question and answer. Explaining it. Proving it. If you want help in those areas, there are tons of resources that we can funnel your way. One I'll put on the Facebook page this week. There's a great link called Napkin Theology. How many of you know one of the easiest times to talk about God is when you're sitting down at breakfast or lunch and you've got a napkin there and you can make a little sketch? This Napkin Theology link will show you a few pictures that you can quickly draw on a napkin at Denny's to help explain the truth of the gospel. Are you prepared? to share it. And then how do you receive God's truth? How do you know what's true? Is it really because you come back to the word of God on a daily basis examining it? 
with eagerness. I hope so. If it's anything less than that, if it's just what some pastor tells you, if it's just what a mother or father or a brother or sister or a friend told you, if, it's, if you know what you know just based on what feels right, what lines up with what's comfortable, I'd encourage you, invite you into this deeper, more sure foundation of God's word. Lord, we've got such a privilege today to have our, our own copy, sometimes 25 copies of your word. And uh, Lord, I know you want us to dive in there with eagerness. I know you want us to go there straight to you and to learn from you. And I know there are many things in this world that, that war against that idea. There's our busy schedule. There's our, there's our own doubts of, can I really learn from God on my own? There's a whole world of other things, Lord. Ultimately, they're all from the enemy. He knows we need our daily bread from you. And I pray that you'd reinstill in us a hunger for your word. God, how awesome would it be if we had a church in America that if, if something came down where we could no longer meet on Sunday and every pastor was thrown in jail that we still have a vibrant body because the body knows your word. God, every one of us is a minister of the gospel. And I pray that you'd uh, just give us that hunger, that commitment to do our best, to be workmen that need not be ashamed, to correctly handle your word of truth. God, and as we share it with people, I pray that your spirit would lead us. Help us to know when to, when to listen when to speak, how to approach it, when to ask a question, when to, to share it boldly, and when to defend it, God. Ultimately, our hope would be that we're so captivated with what you've done in our lives, God, that it, it just flows out of us that we talk to others about it. But as we shared at the beginning, God, we can be faithful, we can share, we can receive at the end of the day, we look to you. We want you to bring in the harvest, God. If you, you've done in this body with at least two women in the past several months, God, keep doing your mighty work through us. Give us an excitement about being a part of it with you. In Jesus' name, amen.